So uh, where, where we left off is that, ooh, this is scary, dangerous. I don't like it. Let's get out of here. <laughs> right? Does that sum that up pretty much? <laughs> scary, dangerous, I don't like it. Let's get out of here. All right. And then, so it's called the knowledge of contemplation of reflection. It's uh, uh, basically, it can happen very quickly. It's just the, the insight that's involved, involved here is the insight that tells you there's no going back. Up until this, up until number 10, you might have thought, okay, that I can back out of this. That's where you would have rolled up your mat and gone to Bangkok. <laughs> or oh, find an entertainment uh, or whatever. But even if you did that, or even if you were going through a long, drawn-out process that lasted weeks or months of these dukkha yanas, at some point there's going to come the realization that knowing what you do now, the, the only possibility is to go forward. And that crystallizes in the form of a resolve, a really strong resolve, a determination. Okay. I'm going to do it. So you go back to the cushion. You're back to the meditation object. And what this leads to, just it automatically transitions into number 11 called Knowledge of Equanimity About Formations. And this, uh, all of the pain, all of the misery, all the unhappy, everything else disappears. And what you experience is an extremely powerful state of equanimity, great mental clarity. Uh, your ability to focus is superb. Your mind is very bright and clear. And there is, there isn't, or at least there shouldn't be, any sense of striving or urgency. There's a lot of effortlessness. There's a certain resignation. Okay, this this is what I've got to do, and I'm going to do it. And very, very minimal attachment to what or how uh, things, how things are going to happen from this point. Um, there is a, a, a very clear goal and, uh, and there's a determination that you're going to keep practicing until you reach it. But it's pretty much free of any kind of attachment beyond that. And there's, there's a very strong feeling of resignation, surrender. Okay, you know, just I'm just going to do it. This is all. And uh, I, say, I say a little bit about the equanimity that you have here. There's an equanimity that comes from samatha, and you will have that. At this point, you're, you're, you're going to have the joy and tranquility and equanimity of samatha. As a matter of fact, this particular stage called the knowledge of equanimity about formations is indistinguishable from 
stage tents on the top rockets. It, uh, they're absolutely the same. You have arrived at stage 10 samatha at this point. The equanimity you have, though, isn't just the equanimity of samatha. You also have the equanimity of insight. You see, the equanimity you have in the 10th stage samatha um, largely comes from the joy, the tranquility, the satisfaction that you have. When you have such a powerful internal source of joy and happiness, uh, equanimity automatically comes from that. There is less of that reactivity of clinging to the pleasant or trying to escape the unpleasant <coughs> because you, because of the very powerful internal sense of uh, happiness and satisfaction and peace that you have. So that's the equanimity of samatha. Um, now what's added to it here is the equanimity of insight. That's the equanimity of, of that, that come that came with the with the disenchantment that you know these things they they are dangerous, they are fearful, they aren't what they look like. Um, they may look attractive, but they're really going to only cause pain and suffering. Um, and so that is the equanimity of insight. So you have equanimity, very, very powerful equanimity from two different sources. So that's one difference between stage 10 sanata and this knowledge of equanimity about formations is the equanimity itself is much stronger because it includes the equanimity of insight. The other difference is that you have the, these mature insights in your mind as well. So it's a, spe- it's a very special state. And uh, typically you sit there with this enormous clarity, uh, power, determination, uh, and surrendering to the process. And over a space of a couple of hours, now there is a lot of energy, a lot of mental energy being consumed in supporting this state. And so if you don't, if the event that's necessary doesn't happen to move you on to the next phase, you'll get tired and your mind will kind of lapse back and you'll go back to the reflection state. And then you'll have another shot at it. And that can be repeated a number of times. But, and as, as I say, you're, you're probably doing fairly intense, long-sitting meditations, but it's going to be in one of these one to two, three-hour at the most periods where you have this very powerful clarity and equanimity present that you're going to have what's called the insight knowledge leading to emergence. Different things are rising and passing away in your mind. Say, for the picture, you're sitting there meditating. You're just observing the sensations of the breath arising and passing away. Every now and then, something else will come along. Air, jet airplane will fly overhead. Somebody will slam a door. Um, some stray thought will just come and go. Doesn't happen very often, but every now and then it does. 
And somewhere in this process, one of those sensations or those thoughts or those images or whatever it happens to be, it will arise and you will see it in a totally different way. Let's say it's an image. Rather than seeing as an image of whatever, you will see it as being the epitome of emptiness. You'll see it as, you'll see it as being totally empty. You don't see it as an image of such and such. You'll see it as an exemplar of emptiness. Or you'll see it as an exemplar of impermanence. You know, what registers in your mind when it comes up is that is impermanence. And what is going to happen to your mind, you know, you remember the analogy I gave you, your mind's like a monkey swinging through the tree, as it lets go of one thing, and it grabs on to the next, and the next, and so it stays up in the trees. Your mind is going to turn away from this. I don't want that. I don't want to do this anymore. The monkey's not going to grasp the next branch. The process of mental formation is going to cease. What's that? And what that's called? I mean, you've you've heard of this before. What is the cessation of? Well, let me just describe in detail what's happening when 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 this takes place. Something has arisen, okay, that's contact, as in the length of dependent origination. So you had a contact event, sensation or thought, some kind of object you have become conscious of. And it elicits a particular feeling, and so uh, then craving automatically follows that, and craving then leads to clinging, that reification, than becoming, some sort of action. Now, in this case, this is going to go on for a few moments, which by a few moments, I mean probably some some fraction of a second, but however many of these mysterious moments of consciousness are involved in that. And if, if you could go in closely enough, uh, and, and you do, you feel this. You might feel that just that it's repeated three or four times, and that for the first three or four times, the the craving and the clinging lead to the regeneration one more time of the experience. So you know, if, it, if we use the example of an image, your mind generates the image, uh, produces a feeling, this craving, this clinging. The becoming part is the image appears in the next moment of consciousness. And then and then once again that's followed by the feeling, the craving, the clinging. And then back to the image and then back to the feeling. And this will repeat, this will cycle a few times. And then you'll reach that point where the image comes and the feeling comes, but this time no craving. The mind says, I don't want that. Now when that happens, you see, it doesn't link to the. It doesn't lead to the link called clinging, and that in turn does not lead to the link called becoming, 
which is where that image is going to show up again. So the screen goes blank, so to speak. The mind ceases the process of mental formation. Craving has ceased. Does anyone know another word for the cessation of craving? Nirvana. Nirvana, exactly. Formations have ceased. All formations, not just craving. Craving is one formation. But because craving has ceased, for a time, all cravings, all, all formations have ceased. And that's another name for nirvana, is the cessation of formations. So what we're talking about is the mind has entered into a state of nirvana, the cessation of craving and formations. Okay? So you have a series of moments where you have this object, whatever it is, that is not seen in its usual way, but is seen as the perfect exemplar of one of these three characteristics. And really what's happening is it may be initially seen as one, but it will be followed by, by all the rest. It's seen as the example of of everything that's wrong with the way your mind has been doing things up to this point in time. And then everything stops. The mind stops. The world stops. That moment, that's called the change of lineage because as a result of nirvana arising uh, and because of the insight that that is going to produce, this is an insight experience. Ah, everything stopped. That's the insight experience. And that is going to produce an insight in the next moment. Um, so th this is an interesting thing about it. Nirvana is the cause of the ultimate insight. <coughs> you see that? Mm -hmm. Every insight has arisen because you had an experience that has registered in your mind uh, that challenges the mind to make a further adjustment in its worldview in order to incorporate that experience. So when your mind stops, when you have the experience of nirvana, when you enter nirvana, that, that is an insight experience. And your mind responds by generating an insight. And when it does, the next moment of consciousness becomes path knowledge. Now in the text speak of the Abhidhamma, this only lasts for one moment of consciousness. But it's nirvana too. It's the same nirvana that you already entered. And so is the next moment. After this one moment of path knowledge where the insight is formed, then you enter the state of fruition knowledge. And this can be a whole lot of moments of consciousness where uh, there are no formations. And this, another name for this experience, nirvana, cessation of formations, is consciousness without an object. Because, And this is an important thing about it, is that there is a knowing taking place. 
as if there was no knowing taking place. There's been a cessation of formations in your life at other times. Uh, I suspect in deep anesthesia that uh, formations cease, although I don't know for sure. Nobody knows what happens in deep anesthesia. But um, in, in deep sleep, and there are moments in everybody's lives where your mind stops, but nothing at all, nothing registers anywhere when your mind stops. So it's, it's not the same. You see how it's different? Okay. The nirvana, there is a knowing that takes place, which is what makes it into uh, the unique and special experience it is. Consciousness without an object, another thing that is called, is the pure consciousness experience, the PCE. <laughs> that, that's that's uh, more modern text speak. Um, pure consciousness experience. So it's consciousness of there being no object of consciousness. Consciousness consciousness of being conscious but not being conscious of something. And knowing that the reason you're not conscious of something is your mind has stopped making up things to be conscious of. So this fruition knowledge, this can last a few seconds, which would be some very large number of moments of consciousness. It can last a few seconds, can last for 5, 10, 15 minutes. Uh, in a few unusual cases, it will last for a long time, an hour or more. But it's called fruition because the insight has already arisen. The understanding has already arisen. And something extremely important is going on during this period of fruition knowledge. That insight is spreading deeper and deeper into the psyche. And so the longer it lasts, the better. But even if it only lasts a few seconds, it's already, it, it will have done the minimal amount of work that's necessary. It will last long enough so that your mind sees things in a completely different way. Most fundamentally, your mind knows that there is no separate self that that was all just a story made up. Your mind knows that the world isn't the way it appears to be, that that was all just a story that's made up. Your mind knows that all of the suffering that has ever, that it has ever experienced and has recollections of stored in its memory banks is nothing but a story that it had made up itself. And your mind knows that ultimately none of that ever has to happen. So then, you come out of this fruition knowledge, the mind will turn back on again, it will want to process what's happened. You'll interpret, your mind will try to interpret this experience in terms of whatever you know, whatever you're familiar with, whatever you've read, whatever you've heard, you know, so, um, depending, you'll say, oh, that was nirvana. 
Or you'll say, oh, I achieved union with God. Or you'll say, oh, I don't know what that was. But that's <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, that knowledge and reviewing is very, very blissful. It's very blissful. Um, one of the most important things that takes place in that reviewing your mind does this pretty automatically. It wants to says, "Wow, what was that? Where did that come from?" And so you go back and you recall, "What was I doing? I was sitting there and meditating, and, and then this thing came, and then this happened, and that happened." Sometimes the recollection of that is enough to send you into fruition again. Right? You will recollect it, and you go through exactly the same steps. You'll remember exactly the same object that arose. You'll remember how you saw it in terms of insight. And your mind will turn around again, and you'll be back in fruition for a while. That's very, very important. If that happens, it's, it's what you should do, and you should stay there as long as you can, and you should repeat it every, every time you pop out and go back. Because remember, it's during this fruition that this insight, this culminating insight, is going, going deeper and deeper. That's, that's a very important part of the process. Uh, it sometimes happens, though, that uh, that doesn't. Now, you you don't re-experience the fruition in that session. But what is really important is that is that you do, and that you learn to, and that you learn to, you learn to enter nirvana, and that you do it often, because this is going to prepare your mind for the next stage of awakening. So what you've achieved here. You've achieved stream entry. You've gone through all this process. You've experienced nirvana. You've had this inside arise, and it's changed you. But it's changed you into stream entry, and it hasn't changed you into a Buddha yet. <laughs> when your mind kicked in and started working again, if you looked, you said, well, I still feel like a separate self, but I know <laughs> it's not true. And it's not just kind of like, I mean, you really, really know it's not true. It's sort of like, Wow, that's amazing. I still feel this way, even though I know it's not true. That's more kind of that sort of thing. But when it comes to your ego self, it's, ah, can't fool me anymore. <laughs> that's not me. I'm not that. Uh, that's just something my mind made up. You will have the characteristics of a stream entry. Of course, there won't, af after this, there won't be any more doubt about about this. You know, this is the ultimate purification by overcoming God. You've had an experience, direct experience, that has resolved any doubt you have. Uh, you do not believe that your ego self, your idea of who you are and what you are, you don't believe in that anymore. You see it for exactly what it is, for exactly what it's always been, is a convenience that helps you negotiate life. But nothing more than that, and and you you see that it's a composite, it's something your mind has made up, that your mind has uh, that it changes constantly. In fact, you will realize that you don't have you don't have one ego self. You've got a closet full of them. You've got one frame that you hang one or the other of them on at any given time. But when you go home to visit mom, you put on one ego self. 
and when you go to do something else in a completely different situation, you, a, a different ego self comes out of the closet to be who you are. And if somebody cuts you off in traffic and gives you the finger and everything like that, well, you've got a different ego self for that situation too. You know, you, and you realize these things. And so you're not fooled anymore. You just you don't believe in this. Um, actually, for the first few days, maybe even weeks, if you're lucky, after this happens, uh, everything is super, super clear. Uh, but over time, the habits of the mind began to creep back in. You're used to reacting in particular ways, and you will do so automatically, even though now it no longer makes any sense. But you'll catch yourself doing it, and when you catch yourself doing it, as soon as you realize it no longer makes any sense, it stops happening. You stop reacting that way. It's just, you know, you, you, you shine the light of understanding on what you're doing, and in that moment it just it changes. Sometimes you get caught more strongly. Some of these habits are pretty ingrained, and there's some people in your lives that have pushed some pretty strong buttons since forever. Right? So you can get caught up. You can start behaving as though you believed you were your ego self. You can even start behaving in ways that contradict your understanding of the reality that's on the other side of not being your ego self, which is that we're all the same. We're all in this together. You know, that there really is no, no separation. So you can find yourself doing things that are hurtful to other people. But what will happen is, at some point, either, either your own suffering or the suffering you're causing somebody else will become intense enough that you wake up again. And you realize, why am I doing this? You know, why am I doing this to myself? If it's your own suffering, you have to, like, you know, I don't have to do this. But, you'll that's what makes you a stream entry, though. Is number one, you have this insight, but number two, you're not completely there yet. You still feel craving and a desire and aversion, and desire and aversion still produces some degree of suffering. But anytime the suffering gets too bad, it will wake you up again. It will bring you back into the present. So I mentioned two of the characteristics of a stream entry. Doubt's gone. You're not fooled by yourself anymore. The other thing is that you've really understood um, emptiness. Uh, you've understood that none of the things that you perceive of any kind have any power of their own because they're actually projections of your mind. And whatever power they have is the power that you, your own mind, is giving to them. And what this translates to in terms of the uh, fetters that have fallen away 
is you no longer believe in the efficacy of rules, rites, rituals. You don't believe in magic because you realize that the only magic is the magic that comes from the mind itself. Which doesn't mean that you won't find use for rites and rituals because the human mind responds well to rites and rituals. But you will not believe that they have any kind of power of their own. And this could allow us to segue into Livingston's question earlier about Buddhist ethics. That still experience craving, desiring aversion, yeah. Desiring aversion. Okay. I thought there was such a powerful equanimity and understanding of emptiness that, that there was no more craving and aversion, especially if the mental formations aren't there. Now, you, you have a certain aspect of craving and aversion that you're relatively free from, but you're not free from craving and aversion. Um, because what you've done, you haven't, you still feel like a separate self even though you know that you're not your ego self, there's still this inherent sense of being a separate self. As long as that exists, there's going to be this dynamic at the boundary between self and other. And that dynamic is craving. That, that I want this, it makes me feel good, I don't want that, it hurts. And, and that will continue to be there. That's a, you're a strange enter because you have only You've only removed these first three fetters. It's only later that you get to the point where you completely overcome craving and aversion. Okay? And I could go several different directions from here. What I'm going to do is say, okay, this process that you've been just that we've just been through, you can go through it, you can go through the last part of it. And you should repeatedly, and and you should have this uh, fruition. You should attain the fruition of experience. You should re-enter nirvana. You should learn to stay there for long periods of time. You should learn to stay there for an hour at a time and do it at will. What this is doing is preparing your mind for achieving the next stage of enlightenment, the next path, second path. What's called the once return. What's going to happen is when your mind is sufficiently prepared, during every one of these fruition experiences, the, the insights that you have are gelling. They're becoming more firmly established. And you're going to reach a point where just like before, the insight you had before was ripe enough to allow this, the first experience of nirvana. Now, this further insight needs to ripen in the same way. And when it has, and when it's ready, then at that point you're ready to achieve the second path, the one of once uh, uh, return. The form that this takes is very similar to these earlier stages that we went through, except with a kind of a different content. 
what corresponds to these stages is you become, or really what corresponds to arising and passing away and dissolution is you become extremely aware of your own mental states and you see that your mind is shifting from one mental state to another mental state to another to another all the time. And what you become acutely aware of those, uh, about those, is that only occasionally do you enter into a mental state that's truly satisfactory. The rest of them are really not very good mental states. And it becomes very clear to you exactly why that is. These not so good mental states are all tainted by desire or aversion. They're tainted by craving. So now, now you kind of have this, you go through this again, but it's in a different version. It's like, oh wow, you know, I keep having these mental states and there's the craving, there's this desire and aversion that keeps coming up and uh, oh, this is, this is why I still have, uh, this is why I'm still unhappy at times, this is why I still do things that I, I, I wish I hadn't at times. Um, and it is fearful and it is dangerous and, and there is a disenchantment like, you know, I want to be, and, and there's a desire for deliverance. I want to be free of these mental states. I want to be free of the desire and aversion that spoils these. And so then that will lead you, you'll, you'll arrive back in the same place. You'll have a similar experience. You'll enter nirvana again. But when you enter nirvana now, it's not, it's not a fruition experience this time. It is a path experience again. But now it's the next path experience. And the effect of the insight that gels here in this experience of nirvana is that desire and aversion become very weak. And then when you come to the knowledge of revealing, you come out of this, you realize that what you have to do is you have to uproot desire and aversion. You have to confront them directly. You have to, instead of being at their mercy when they were so strong, now that they're weak, you can actually basically invite desire so that you can confront it and dive for its roots to dig it up. This makes you a once returner. And you're going to you're going to work with desire and aversion in this way. You will also continue to repeat the fruition experience. Only now it's not going to be the fruition experience of the first path, it's going to be the fruition experience of the second path of the, of the once returner. When your mind becomes ripe, you'll go through the whole process again. This time, you'll become a non-returner and you will have no craving left. Well, you will have you will have a particular kind of craving. It's still the craving for existence because you still experience yourself as separate. And so that leaves you as a once re as a non-returner, that leaves you with this one last kind of craving. But you no longer have any kind of craving for anything in the world. 
nor is anything in the world going to cause you to suffer anymore. These seem like really rarefied states yeah. that I'm trying to imagine these states happening to a householder, and it's very difficult. Well, um, you're a householder? Yeah. Okay, so. <laughs> yep. Imagine. Okay, let's talk about what it's like to be. Well, can you see what it'd be like to be a stream enterer? Okay, as a householder, everybody feel like uh, if you can kind of picture it like to be a stream mentor as a householder. To be a once returner as a householder means that you still experience desire and aversion and reaction to different things. You experience them very acutely, not acutely as in their very powerful urges, but rather very acutely as in boy, are you ever aware of them every time they come up? And they're kind of coming up all the time. And so this is an opportunity for you. So you're living your life, and you're pretty happy, except that you're, you're aware of all this desire and aversion that is just keep keeping coming up over and over again. Everywhere you go, you go in this room, you go in that room, you go out to your garden, and hey, everywhere you go, there's new sources of desire and aversion. Little ones and big ones, you know, in the space of a few minutes, you can have a whole spectrum of, you know, desire and aversion. And this is an insight experience. And the insight, it, 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 as, as we've done in the last few of these, it's the same old insights, but they're deepening. It's the insight that where is this coming from? Where this is coming from is well, you already taught this. Where does desire, where do desire and aversion come from? What are their roots? Ignorance. Delusion. And what is the delusion? The belief in a separate self and the belief that the world is the way it appears to be. And so you still have some of this. And, but now, now desire and aversion become the pointers to point you to this. Why does this make me feel desire? Ah, I can see why it makes me feel desire. Right? And you keep doing that over and over again, and that's what that's what the life of a once returner is like. It you know, um you've you've really returned to samsara big time because you are so aware of desire and aversion. They are much weaker than they have been for all of your whole past life. But you are so much aware of them, so you're right there with them. But that's also, that's really good. So you're, you're working, you're, every minute of every day, you're working with these things. And when you get slack, you know, because they get stronger. They catch you in blindside. That's what it's like being a once returner householder. So you don't have to on a cushion for six hours a day. No, you don't. As as a matter of fact, uh, time on the cushion is a very valuable support. But by the time that by the time you finish this process of insight the first time, your life 
your daily life is uh, as, as powerful a practice of mindfulness as you ever did on the cushion before that. And it only becomes more powerful. Things become a little bit less clear-cut with the experiences that come after that. Um, the way it's described in the text, you would think that when you become a non-returner, that you never ever experience any desire and aversion for anything at all, ever. It sounds really clear-cut like that. As a householder who is a non-returner, uh, what you experience is you're totally surprised when you realize that you don't feel any desire and aversion for things. Things don't bother you and you don't, you know. Um, you can see your mind reacting uh, to certain kinds of things. Take food, for example. Um, you enjoy, you will, at this stage, you will enjoy the taste of food as much as ever. And some foods will taste better to you than others. But there's a subtle difference. This one is absolutely fabulous, so delicious, and this one is not so much, but you don't have the same compulsion to have this one as opposed to that one. It's just, it's not there. And, it's, and when you become aware of it, it's kind of, wow, wow, hmm, that's strange, that's different. <laughs> and unpleasant things don't, <coughs> They don't produce the same kind of reaction anymore, and it's very surprising. It's not as clear-cut, though, as the text would have you believe, because every now and then you will experience desire. Every now and then you will experience uh, aversion, especially when you get tired. You get really tired. Um, you get worn down. You get weakened. You get sick. Then you'll find these things come up from time to time. But talk about not having much power. I mean the likelihood that you're going that they're going to lead to action is just about non-existent. So one of the things people wonder is well if um, if you don't have desire, how do you make choices and how do you function? Well you take care of yourself the same way you would anybody else. Um, if there's a cool spot in the shade and a hot spot in the sun, you know, you're going to give your body and mind the benefit of sitting in the cool spot in the shade. Or if there's something good to eat and something spoiled to eat, you're going to eat the good thing, not the spoiled thing. You know? And you're going to enjoy it. Whatever you do, you're going to enjoy in the same way. No, that's not true. I was going to so I'm about to say you're going to enjoy it in the same way that you ever did. But that's not true. As a matter of fact, you enjoy anything that's pleasurable far more than you ever did in the past. Unbeknownst to you, every time something good comes along, you limit your enjoyment of it because some part of you knows it's going to go away. Some part of you is already worried about its loss, even when you've just gotten it. Some part of you is trying to grasp onto it. 
And that grasping keeps you from enjoying it fully. As a matter of fact, you have two things going on at the same time. You have an unpleasant feeling being generated by the prospect of its ending, its loss. At the same time, you have a pleasant feeling that's arising directly from the chocolate you put in your mouth or whatever it is. And so the two are canceling each other out. <laughs> as long as there's a whole lot more in our ordinary lives, as long as there's a whole lot more pleasure than there is displeasure coming from our attachment, we still enjoy the event. But we're not enjoying it nearly as much as we would if we could remove the attachment and the associated displeasure, you see? So that's one of the things that's different is you enjoy everything much, much more. Uh, to use an example, you enjoy graspable things in the same way that previously you could only enjoy ungraspable things. So an ungraspable thing might be like a beautiful sunrise or uh, a flower just opening or a fabulous hummingbird or one of these ungraspable things. But Graspable things, that's all the other kinds of things that you have the potential to, that at least your mind believes it has potential to hold on to, to chase after, and things like that. So if you can compare right now, your mind's reaction to an incredible sunset with uh, a flight of birds in the distance, and just how, when something like that happens, you know, a view of the Grand Canyon, it's just like, you just open up and enjoy it. And can you imagine enjoying everything that way? That's that is the difference. Realize how ephemeral everything is. Everything's ephemeral, and you can't own anything. Everything is as ephemeral as a sunset or a rainbow. Everything is. I've told you all before you're rainbows anyway. <laughs> Everything is ephemeral and everything is equally as ungraspable. You know better than you go and try and cast the rainbow, right? <laughs> Except metaphorically speaking. But, um, because you, you can't, and you can't, you can't hold on to the sunset. As a matter of fact, I feel so sorry when I see people that do that. Oh, look at that sunset. Where's my camera? Where, oh, here's my phone. <laughs> oh, I hope that turns out. Well, that's pretty good. <laughs> You missed it. <laughs> you weren't there for it. You could have been. <laughs> you mentioned in the packet that at the higher stages of awakening, there's the potential of being in nirvana while also being aware, I think, of mental and bodily. Mm -hmm. Could you talk a little bit more about how that's possible? <laughs> or what that even means? <laughs> Let's talk about something easier. I'll let my unconscious mind work on the answer to that one for a little while. I hope this isn't something from out of left field, but this weekend we've been discussing uh, the evolution and passage of the mind 
during this process. Yeah. And I'm wondering, can you say something about how this impacts the physical body and one's health? In other words, as one's practice of meditation progresses, what is the experience with health and the body? Uh, I can, uh, yeah, I can say a few things about that. <laughs> First of all, what it does is it, it pretty well eliminates all stress-related health problems, right? Which, and, and stress is a factor in most every kind of health problem. But you're still, your, your body is still subject to causes and conditions and you know, uh, if you smoked earlier in your life, becoming enlightened isn't going to keep you from getting lung cancer. And one of my teachers died of lung cancer. Uh, it's not going to keep you from getting infections. Depending on your genes and your diet and your lifestyle, it's not going to keep you from getting uh, atherosclerosis and having a heart attack or a stroke. Um, all of these kinds of things. Your body is a part of this material world. And there's nothing about awakening uh, insight and awakening to truth that is going to alter the processes of causality. But each of us, we are a dynamic of body and mind. And the mind impacts on the body in many different ways. And so in terms of your health, you are going to enjoy all of the beneficial aspects of that. Which, no stress-related disorders, that's going to be part of it. Um, it's also, you know, from my point of view and my recent experience, I would tell you one, one of the greatest impacts is that when your body does what it's going to do, and it gets old, and it begins to break down, and, and you start to die. It's not going to be a problem. Um, a lot of things that happen to our bodies are very painful, and I've been through some very painful things, and uh, pain's not a problem. You know, I, I can honestly say, pain is not a problem. And that, that's a huge thing. Um, And related to that, there's a lot of distress associated with with being ill, and a lot of distress associated with being in a situation where you know your body is failing you. But the insight wisdom puts you in a place where it's more, ah, I can see how this could be really stressful for somebody, but it doesn't take the smile off. Did that answer your question? Yes, thank you. You're going to die. <laughs> so, if you came here thinking you're going to find the secret to immortality. <laughs> well, the answer is yes, you are, but not the way you thought. <laughs> yeah. Well, there's, I don't know if if you might be familiar with uh, an antique book from 1966 by Robert Heinlein called Stranger in a Strange Land. Yes. But he 
he has this characterization of these old ones from Mars who are aliens, and they've got all this culture about discorporation and, you know, dying, leaving the body. And some of them fail to notice. When the, and this, is, this can be, you know, a tremendous inconvenience. This, this Martian artist was deeply involved in a composition and it was, forgot to eat, passed away, and kept kept composing. And uh, and, and they were trying. The, the Martians have philosophical conversations about which side of the divide to judge the artwork on, whether it should be judged as a living composer or a dead one, because that matters. And and I and I've been listening to this idea of no self and 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 trying to wrestle this idea that we're vibrations, we're energy bundles, uh, consciousness is is a contributed point of view. Okay, fine. I get old, my body fails me. Vibration continues. Mm-hmm. Matter continues. Mm-hmm. The the arguable things that compose. Uh, me don't really leave the planet. That's right. So, do you think we notice when we die? (laughs) (laughs) If we're really not this, and all that happens is the the illusion of separateness has, has, has been set aside, and we're not separate, never were, and we'd catch on to this if we could just remember that our faces before we were born, then there's really an arguable position that we'll die and go, oh, that was a thing, and <laughs> keep going, <laughs> but not in any way that we can imagine from this side of the divide. Mm-hmm. So, do you think we'll notice? <laughs> Who noticed what? <laughs> okay, too shape this cat. The non-separate we is always noticing. Your life is you know, I can't remember Stranger in a Strange Land that well. But I can tell you that your your life, that which you define as your life, that is your one great creative artistic masterpiece. It is. And it will exist forever. As a part of the fabric of the universe. And also, it doesn't matter how ugly the infrastructure worked before you put the final touches on. It can be the most astoundingly beautiful creation, you know, e- e- even though the, the pipes and wires before you got the final coat of plaster uh, looked pretty horrendous. So keep that in mind. Your life is a work of art. And uh, actually, it will be easier to appreciate from the other side because it will be a finished work than it is from this side 
although the more you can appreciate it as a work of art from this side, the better it's going to look from the other side when you're done. <laughs> <laughs> and how you see other side? What's that? How do you see other side? Well, you don't see anyway, because you're just a figment of your imagination. <laughs> That's why I said we are the we the, the the we that is not separate is noticing all the time, seeing all the time. So you know how to see? Well, the, the seeing will happen. In the seeing of your life as a work of art will be only the seeing. You don't need you don't need somebody to do the seeing. That's kind of like the consciousness in your mind right now. You don't need a little person parked somewhere inside your head to be watching the show, looking out through the windows of your eyes. Does that make sense to you? Okay. So that well, that's that. That's quite understandable. That that is the toughest nut to crack. I mean, there's got to be a me, isn't there? You know? And that's why you know when the Buddha became enlightened, he didn't get up and say, "Wow, is this neat? I'm going to go tell everybody." <laughs> you know what he said? He said, oh, no, I, nobody's going to understand. There's no point in me trying to tell anybody. This is what, the, this is what he thought, and he describes that. He said, it would be a total waste of time for me to try to tell anybody what I've discovered, because nobody's going to understand. It is so hard. But fortunately, he changed his mind. <laughs> And he was very doubtful at first. He tried to think, well, w when he came to the point of saying, okay, who can I try to explain this to? He thought about his two earlier teachers. He said, oh, okay. Maybe I could try explaining to them. They're, they're really wise. They taught me a lot. They might get it. It turned out that they had both passed away by that time. The next he thought of his companions that he had been practicing with before he went off by himself and achieved his own enlightenment. And he went and looked them up, and he spent several days teaching continuously, explaining, and I'm sure they don't mention it in the sutras, they must have spent some time sitting and meditating. He explained, talked and said, okay, well, I want you to meditate on this. I want you to, like I said, earlier this afternoon, I've told you a lot of things. No, not this afternoon, this morning. I've told you a lot of things. Now meditate and see if you can, you know, see if you can put some of this to work. I'm sure that was a part of it. And they were able to understand. Maybe they were able to grasp it. So that's why he decided, well, maybe people can understand it. But what makes it difficult is the very root problem, the belief in itself, is absolutely the hardest thing to understand and accept that 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 could really be the problem, and that it could really be an illusion, it could really not be true. Um, as I've tried to make clear, everything else about this dharma is pretty straightforward. It is understandable, and it's doable. Have I succeeded to some degree with that? <laughs> but what we're left with 
is when you've all understood all the rest of it and it makes sense to you and, and you found you can do it and you're having wonderful meditation experiences, is the hardest thing to let go of is, but there needs to be a me in here. That's a part of it. And the first stage of awakening is just a partial letting go of that. You're saying, okay, the me's not my ego. And that's a huge release to be able to say that. But you're still holding on to the idea that I don't know what form it is, but I'm still sure there's got to be a me in here. And people, stream mentors, one of the things stream mentors do is they try to make consciousness into the me. And this is one of the problems the Buddha had with some of his followers. Is they would say, ah, I, I figured it out. I figured out consciousness. That's that's what's reborn. Ah. <coughs> and the Buddha would have to say, you know, you foolish man, I've been telling you, telling you. <laughs> and that, that keeps on happening. I mean, that's happened with Buddhism for 2,500 years. Buddhist teachers still today are trying to tell you that somewhere in there there's a you. They call it all kinds of strange things. They call it the, the uh, mind stream or the stream of consciousness or, you know, uh, the bawanga or the awaya. But they're still trying, they're, they're still coming from that same place. They say, they say, I got you, Mr. Buddha. Yeah, I understand everything you're saying. But as for me, the real self, uh, the real self, yeah, I, I understand. No self. No self means that's not self, and that's not self, and that's not self, and that's not self. But now I figured out what it is. You know, and that's not what no self means. It means there is no separateness, and there is no self. It's an illusion. Like a bag of M&M's. What's that? Like a bag of M&M's. Like a bag of M&M's. <laughs> That's too deep for me. <laughs> I can go with what you said. I'm not my ego. For me, it's no problem. I, I mean, I'm. Well, you see, that's good. That's all. You don't have to. You don't have to figure out the rest, and that's really good because you can. Okay. Uh, there's but for me. <laughs> ego is okay. Habits is okay because I developed this through mm-hmm. whatever. It's not me. But when it goes, I'm just practically. I say, okay, I pinch myself. Oh, it's painful. It's me. I have to go to work and earn and yeah, pay right. for my living. So who is going to do if it's not me? If it's not <laughs> <laughs> and I guess everybody kind of, I know, I could yeah. not. Okay, so you, your body and mind's going to keep on doing all the good things it's done before. Um, What's going to change? There are going to be some of the things that you that the me has been doing that you're going to stop doing, and those are going to be the harmful things. Those are those are going to be what's going to stop happening are the things that you do for the sake of the me that you really shouldn't do, the selfish thing, the harmful thing. But you're going to do all the other things the same as before. It's just that you're no longer going to believe that there's some self in here that's in charge of doing them. And you don't have to figure it out. All I ask is you don't do anything that is going to further strengthen or concretize this belief. Now, self, we divide self into two parts. There is the ego self, 
That's the mind's construct of who and what we think we are. That's why it gets offended when somebody says something we don't like or when somebody steals our money or something like that. That's the ego self. And then, and that's the one that we can see through most easily. And that's the one that we become a stream enterer when we have completely seen through it. It's completely transparent. Now it's a tool that we use. It's something the mind creates to serve a purpose, to get us to work, to feed us, to, you know. So from now on, the ego self does its job and it doesn't get to pretend it's something other than it is. The other part of it, though, is the inherent sense of self. This is this feeling of being a self. And this is not has nothing to do with the intellectual mind, and there's no way your intellectual mind can get beyond it. It's, it's a gut feeling that I am a separate entity. I am a self. And that's there. Now what you do with that intellectually, you could say, oh, well, I am the self came into existence when mom and dad got together one night. It's going to go out of existence when I have my last heart attack. That's it. Or you can say, oh, the self, uh, it, it's always been, uh, it always will be. When I die, this inherent sense of self is going to float over and find a new place to reside. You can do all kinds of things intellectually with it, but what you're stuck with is the inherent sense of self. You don't lose that till you become a Buddha. That's the fourth and final of the four stages of enlightenment, is when you overcome the inherent sense of self, where there's no longer that sense of separation. And so you can't figure out and you can't picture and you can't imagine what it's like to be on the other side of that divide. Okay? So don't try. If you can grasp what it's like not to be captivated by your ego, so that your ego is nothing but a psychological convenience that keeps your laundry separate from somebody else's, and has no further significance than that, and that you're way ahead of the game, and that's, that's all you need to do. And if you keep if you keep practicing, you will get to the place of no longer being subject to the inherent sense of self. I want to say one more thing about this, because there is the very widespread impression, uh, due to a lot of reasons, that you know, gee, this sounds great, but I I, I might not be able to do it in my lifetime. Right? Or I probably won't. You, you know, if you're like, boy, I sure hope I make it to the first one, but second, third, and fourth, um, no point in even thinking about those. But, you see, what, what the Buddha, the Buddha did not teach that this was something that you were going to achieve in another lifetime. Because he said, forget other lifetimes. He said, this is something that you can achieve in this lifetime. And it doesn't matter if you're 90 years old when you start. You can achieve this. You can achieve the complete, full realization in this lifetime. And from the Buddha's point of view, that's the only point in starting it, is to do it in this lifetime. Because if, if you think it's something that you won't or can't do, then that's going to get in your way. And so he, he went out of his way, because other people were teaching enlightenment in his days, but they were teaching it as something that happened after you die. 
And some of them were teaching it as something that happened in some future life. And some of them were teaching it as something that happened in a future life in some heavenly realm, some Deva realm where you would be reborn. And he was basically going down the list of every one of them. He'd say, wrong, 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 wrong. This life, and this life is the only one that counts. And so, yes, you can, you can achieve that complete realization where the inherent sense of self disappears. And and you should try to do that. Do it. Do it. Yeah. I think you said earlier that you would share something about the Buddha's social views or code of ethics. Oh, yeah. Can you do that, please? I'd, yes. I'd like it. Maybe we should take a break and then we'll come back and we'll talk about Buddhist ethics. If everything's empty and impermanent and I have no self, why the hell should I behave? 